So, it's Boxing Day. Are you all sitting down for the after-dinner nuts, chocolate, cheese and biscuits, or Bet's terrible orange and lemon slices? Welcome back to Don't Slam Your Podcast. And today, we'll be discussing the 1996 Christmas special, two years before the mast, and finally, a Christmas special released at Christmas. Joining me to discuss it is long-term friend of the podcast and long-term 2.4 fan and campaign head of the 2.4 DVD and streaming campaign, which has proven a huge success this year with its release on BritBox. It's David. David, thank you for joining me. How are you today? Hi, JD. Not too bad. Thank you. Yourself? Very good. Thank you. I would ask if you had a nice Christmas, but we are recording this a week in advance, so we don't know yet. We don't know if we're going to be in lockdown. I personally would like to... Go on. I can say it's probably going to be the same as every year. We'll wake up, open some presents, watch the cap dive in and out of wrapping paper, then watch... I was going to say 2.4 children then, but we top of the pops, then having lunch, and then my mum will turn the TV off so she doesn't have to watch the Queen. That sounds fair. I personally would love to be stuck and be a stowaway. I had to think there for a moment. A stowaway on a cruise ship rather than being locked down. But anyway, yeah. say BritBox has got all 2.4 children now, so Christmas arrived. If you haven't watched it yet, I would recommend watching it now because there's spoilers. I should have warned everyone from the beginning of this podcast there would be spoilers. I think if everyone's listening to it, they've probably seen most of the episodes, at least. That's very true. You'd like to think, yes. Well, thank you for joining me again, David. I know this is your favourite episode, so it's it's good to have you on for a particular fan favourite as well as your own. Yeah, it's my favourite. Definitely way out there. And so before we go into the review, if you've ever wondered how the production team of 2.4 Children found themselves filming a Christmas special on a cruise ship, how it was actually filming on a cruise ship, and why Claire Bookfield doesn't actually appear on the cruise ship. As ever, it's Christmas every episode of this podcast. It's Andrew Marshall. Hello. I hope you had a great Christmas day, as far as you can these days. And we're here to talk about the 2.4 Series 6 Christmas special, Two Years Before the Mast, named after an old movie with Alan Ladd. As it's Christmas, I've got uh, a lot more to tell you than usual, so let's get started on how how we made this episode. It's our longest ever episode, and as it happens, was the last Christmas special we ever made due to various circumstances. And what happened was that P&O Cruises came to us and made a deal with us that if we were to film an episode on board Oriana, they'd provide us with cabins and backup and things uh, to do the Christmas show. And so about two or three months before we were due to make the show, Myself and, and key production staff schlepped down to uh, Southampton and there we were given a tour of the whole of Oriana, which was in port at that time. And so we were able to see, you know, all the various things on board. And then I came back and began to try and piece together some sort of story that would link all these various elements that you find on board the real ship. But there was one other element that uh, we had to add to it 
Belinda had come to me and asked if we could find a role for her father. Now, I, you probably don't know this, but both Belinda's parents were quite famous back in the day. Belinda's mother was a famous musical comedy star called Joan Heal. And if you Google the soundtrack album of a musical called grab me a gondola you can hear belinda's mother singing such songs as i want a man not a mouse so you can hear what what she used to sound like and belinda's father was called jeremy hawk and he was also pretty famous in the day and and indeed had his own game show at the time which was called crisscross quiz which is a sort of uh, quiz version of noughts and crosses and so i also had to build in a jolly good part for him into the episode and we also wanted to include uh, tina sandra dickinson so eventually i cobbled together this story and the deal was that we would have exactly a week on the ship filming the whole thing and at the end of the week when the ship docked in piraeus the port of athens we would all be flown back on the P&O jet together with all the equipment and then we'd put the show together and in fact we even took the videotape editor with us and he was on board the ship editing uh, the show as we went in down in the depths of the bowels of the ship somewhere so we could sort of see the progress as we went and so one morning we all turned up at Southampton docks bright and early to film all the scenes that were on the dock side the bits that come in between the little bit we shot in the studio which sets up the episode and then the bit on the ship and while we were filming this everybody was boarding the ship the ship was due to sail at a particular time uh, in the late afternoon and so we were having to film these scenes knowing that if we didn't finish by the time the ship sailed we wouldn't be able to get on it and we wouldn't be able to do anything which was which was quite a terrifying sort of scenario really but it all went pretty well until the afternoon when we were filming a bit right on the dockside and due to a piece of absolutely terrible bad luck there was a powerboat race which was happening right next to us in the water now i don't know if you ever heard a powerboat but it's an extremely loud sound and we had all these hordes of powerboats circling and going around and uh, the sound people were having nightmares that they that it was interfering with our dialogue and we'd never be able to hear what they say but and of course uh, at the same time the clock was ticking up to ship sailing time so that was all pretty terrifying and so we didn't know what to do since we couldn't wait till the powerboat race finished but we had to somehow get this scene anyway belinda amazingly saved the day by just saying it'll probably be all right and i don't know how she knew this but in fact it was perfectly all right the the dialogue was fine in the end and there was only the faintest sound of the powerboats uh, in the distance but sometimes the sound guys who who listen very intent on on headphones can pick up sounds that you don't really notice at home in the uh, final mix of course to sound it's very important that the sound is pure so they have you know their corner to stand in so we have to respect that but on the on this occasion we had to just take the sound we got and we got Got so close to the ship sailing it was like sailing in about 10 minutes that we all had to load our own luggage onto this enormous bus which then drove at enormous speed down the dockside to uh, I think some sort of like crew entrance where we all humped our luggage onto the ship at the very last minute and they shut the doors and we were off filming on uh, Oriana. And so we all settled into our cabins and the ship sailed merrily out of harbour and we all fell exhausted 
to sleep, knowing that the next morning we were going to have a, a huge production meeting to plan the whole thing. So we went to sleep, and when we woke up, we were crossing the Bay of Biscay, and everybody was most horribly seasick, including me. I was so bad I couldn't even uh, actually... I remember I was I was lying on my bed, my bunk, as I think they call it in, in nautical terms, and the steward brought me some water and put it by the side of my bed, and I couldn't even reach my hand out to drink the water. It was I was I was in such a dire state, which was all absolutely dreadful. And eventually, someone on the production sent uh, the ship's doctor round, who gave us special anti-seasickness pills, injections, not pills, and somehow or other this cured it, and we were able to proceed. And so we then started the business of trying to film this whole 40-minute episode in the week that we had left. The cabin uh, you see them all in is a real Oriana cabin, and <laughs> you see them all squashed in the cupboard at one point, and what you don't see is the other side of the camera, all of us squashed into the the rest of this tiny room. With the benefit of hindsight, uh, it would be much more sensible to just uh, have built a replica of the cabin in the studio, but I don't know why we didn't think of that at the time, because what happened was that we would film everything in one direction, and then everybody would have to leave the cabin, which was becoming increasingly like that famous Marx Brothers, everybody squashed into a cabin scene in, in A Night at the Opera, if you're familiar with that, and uh, then we would have to reset the lights pointing in the other direction, and the camera pointing in the other direction, and we'd all have to go back in and film in the opposite direction, and it took absolutely ages and ages, and we were sort of falling behind schedule almost immediately even though Nick was able to uh, go down with Mark Lawrence and, and assemble things as we go we were just falling further and further behind to, to start with because of the way things work on a ship they have fixed dinner sittings where you have to go and eat your food you know at a particular time altogether and so we were all <laughs> had to put on sort of like dinner jackets and go down and uh, have these meals at the end of the day and then as we got further and further further behind schedule and, and more and more tired we weren't finished by the time the meal was ready so we used to have to have sort of sandwiches and you know leftovers that people had left outside their cabins and it just got worse and worse the crew were amazingly patient throughout all this i mean it could easily have become mutiny on the bounty i really do thank them for their extraordinary patience while we tried desperately to film all these things in the small window of time that we had periodically this we'd sort of go up up on deck for a breather and find that you know Gibraltar was outside or something and happy passengers were going out in little boats to have a day out there and we just have to go back down to the cabin and film another scene <laughs> so we never we never got any benefit out of it ourselves at all it was it was a real kind of galley slave situation where we were beetling along trying to get all this stuff done Another thing that bedeviled us, and, and no one had ever really thought about this, although I had kind of read things of various people who'd made things on ships saying, never, never film on a ship. But here's something that, you know, had never struck us until we did it. You go up on deck and you film a scene where people are standing on deck and behind them is, you know, a lovely view of the sea. And then you go off and have a quick lunch. And then when you come back and you want to continue the scene, you find that the ship has 
uh, rotated on the anchor and instead of the sea being there the rock of Gibraltar is there instead so you've got half a scene where uh, the sea is in the background and another half of a scene where the rock of Gibraltar is in the background and they don't match and all this kind of thing and that's just one of the many things that bedevil you um, when you're at sea. Another problem was there was a scene where Sandra and Jeremy were having a sort of romantic interlude in the restaurant. It was supposed to be sunset time so we thought according to the schedule we had to get up very early so we could set up this shot for sunrise outside this huge picture window uh, in the restaurant in the background and pretend it was sunset so we all got up early and went to the restaurant and then outside the window was nothing but white bank of fog and so we had to film the scene with this absolute white behind the windows and what you see the sunset that you see is some sort of process they've added to add the sunset into the background so that was another complication that no one had ever thought of and so we worked our way through the scenes but by the time we got to Piraeus and it was time to go home we hadn't quite finished everything and so when we got home uh, the final scene we hadn't finished, which was in the ship's nightclub, that's not the ship's nightclub, that's actually a nightclub in Watford. I think it's Cinderella Rockefeller is what it was called in Watford, but fortunately it kind of fits in and, and, and it doesn't really notice that badly, I hope. So the next thing we had to do was pair to the studio to do the little bits of the show that were set in the house. Now, we couldn't take... Claire with us on the ship because she was unavailable during that week because I think she was touring with Darren Day in summer holiday at the time or some such thing or perhaps it was something else but I think that's what it was so there also had to be a story strand where she was left behind with Liz Smith and Barbara Lott so that was yet another complication to add into this very very elaborate jigsaw puzzle I had to put together to, to make the story work so we then recorded those studio bits I think at the end of another recording where we were probably doing either The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe or... Um, and now the screaming starts and then the whole thing was put together I think it must have been before those two episodes because when the audience came in to see the final episode that is to say and now the screaming starts we then kept the audience and played them on the monitor the entire Christmas episode and used the laughs from the audience watching it on the monitors on the soundtrack of that it all went together beautifully in the end, as you can see. There are two musical numbers. One is at the beginning. I can't remember why. Something to do with studio availability. That would usually be in one of the BBC Television Centre studios, that uh, white psych background, as we call it. For some reason, I think we did it in a sort of an abandoned warehouse in Neasden or some such thing. I can't remember why exactly. Perhaps it was cheaper or something so that was a bit strange to be out of the television center much missed place that uh, we'll probably never go back to now and the same with the final episode now the final song which is a number from a musical called fanny uh, be kind to your parents was done by claire and 
John, and the sort of stuff that's going on in the background is a vague tribute to uh, Morecambe and Wise, where Ernie would often be doing a number in the foreground, and Eric would sort of come on in his going-home clothes in the background and notice and, and, and come and join it. Uh, it was kind of elaborated a little bit more for us with the three of the main cast, uh, Gary, Belinda and Julia coming on in fur coats and scarves, culminating Gary coming on with a fur coat and a scarf for no really reason other than it looked very funny. And uh, what you can't see, and what really cracked us up uh, when we, we were making this, was uh, they all come on uh, in these uh, fur coats and, and they notice the kids are singing in the foreground and then they go off again. And then they come on again in lovely sort of evening jackets and dresses and things and run up to the camera. And and that's where it freezes. But what you couldn't see was off screen when they went off in the fur coats. They're all kind of ripping all their clothes off and putting these dresses and, and, uh, and jackets on <laughs> in uh, a terrible rush to try and uh, come on at the right moment and run up to the camera. I'm sorry you can't see that. It was very, very funny. But there it is. It's one of my favourite episodes. It uh, is our longest episode, our final Christmas episode as it happens. And I hope when you see it on BritBox, you enjoy it as much as we didn't enjoy making it at all <laughs> for all the reasons I've outlined. So that's it. It's back to JD now. And just a reminder that uh, Rob Grant and I's sketch show, The Nether Regions, will be coming on Radio 4 the first week in January. So do look out for that and I hope you have a laugh. And happy Christmas to you all and a happy new year. So we open on like a white background and the sign of 2.4 Christmas. It's like life size, very similar to the logo from series six onwards, like uh, fridge magnets and multicolored. And when this episode was first promoted in like magazines and on TV, it was promoted as 2.4 Christmas. And looking back, I, I think, it, you know, it kind of works because of, you know, CH, children, Christmas, it, it sort of works really well as a play on words. So Belinda Lang appears from the left as the music begins. I'm going to call them by the actor names because you'll, you'll know why in a moment. And so... She's wearing a, a long green dress. And what, what's the kind of gloves she's wearing? It's like long-sleeved gloves that go near her elbow. Uh, dressy sort of posh dinner gloves. Yeah, po posh dinner gloves. I like that. So the song that, that begins is called The Christmas Alphabet by Buddy J and Jules Lowman. So the lyrics are basically every letter in the word Christmas and it's referring, each letter is da-da-da is for the something related to Christmas, i.e. C is for the candy trimmed around the Christmas tree. H is for the happiness with all the family. R is for the reindeer prancing by the window pane and so on and so forth. And then at each alphabet, Belinda stands by the specific letter of, of Christmas and one of the cast does something in relation to the lyrics. So, for example, C is for the candy trimmed around the Christmas tree. You have Julia Hill standing behind the giant sea, wearing a, a very similar kind of glamorous dress. And there's a small Christmas tree on top of the sea, which she puts a, a candy cane on. And then H is for the happiness with all the family. John and Claire appear dressing in clothes that I can only describe as like what Kate and William dress their children in. Very old fashioned children's clothes. What's that kid? Well, not the kids show. Um, that show from the seventies, and it was the, the family, the Waltons. 
The Waltons, yeah, they look like the Waltons. That's a very good um, and um, just sort of comparison there. They look very wholesome and they've got really wholesome smiles. They give each other a present and it's a bit cheesy. Enforced happiness. Exactly. Like Christmas. Yes. R is for the reindeer prancing by the window pane and above the R is a, is a hanging picture frame. Belinda Carrick starts singing, but then Gary storms on the set wearing a reindeer costume that basically looks like a onesie. And then he says, you know, hold on a minute, just a minute. Oi, hold on. And Gary gives the signal to turn the music off. And he asks what's going on and asks why he's dressed like that. Bill, Belinda, or should I say Bill Linda, Belinda, repeats, R is for the reindeer prancing by the window pane. You go behind that frame and prance. Gary asks why. Julia says, because it says so in the song. And Gary reminds her, the song doesn't come until the end. And Belinda clarifies, not this year. There is no song at the end this year. Gary says, isn't it? And the others go, no. And so Gary continues. And what I love about the kind of evolution of the Christmas special musical numbers is we all know that they kind of do sort of break out a song, but Gary's always always the butt of jokes. And in the last Christmas special, Porky's, he's on the horse saying, you know, I've said to them, I've said to them, if I don't sing the song this year, I'll walk. Is playing this persona that he's kind of an art artiste, and he even kind of says it now. He's, I'm sorry, but I don't think it'd be dignified for an artist of my caliber, not just caliber, caliber. Yeah. So Belinda asks, you know, would you like to do the I instead? And Gary mocks her, saying, No, I would not like to do the I instead. <laughs> Belinda says it's a very good part, it's a much better part than the reindeer. Gary then says, Really? Well, you do the I then, and I'll do your part. Belinda gets, says. Very well, then let's just get on. John asks, what about the reindeer? And, and I love, again, this kind of interaction of the fact that it is the actors talking, not the characters. Gary shouts, Kim. Kim Benson runs on. And he goes, extra part for you. And he hands her the reindeer costume. And she goes, oh, great. And it, it, it is a really nice bit of chemistry there. The music starts again. And Gary appears wearing this kind of blue suit. Look like one of the rat pack, very cool. And he, you know, his hair's all the done up. He goes, Hiya, thanks for being here. Hiya, good to see you. Yeah. And then he redoes the opening of the song. C is for the candy trimmed around the Christmas tree. H is for the happiness with all the family. R is for the reindeer prancing by the window pane. And in that moment, Kim is dressed up as the reindeer but the frame's so high and obviously she's quite small and she's just jumping up <laughs> to get by the frame in this reindeer costume and it's just a really funny visual then he gets to i which is and belinda's there i is for the icing on the cake because we just plop belinda has removed from her back a bowl of icing sugar and whacks gary in the face it's absolutely brilliant. It's a really great visual. You know it's coming, but it's just really funny. I need to listen to the song, though, because I actually want to know what the rest of the letters stand for. Now. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, the lyrics are on uh, YouTube, but I'm sure um, on Google, but I'm sure you can hear it on a version of it somewhere. No. I'd love to know what they do in the other letters and what the other sort of actors would do behind the certain letters. <laughs> yeah, they could have had... Um... Barbara Lott and Liz Smith on there as well. Yes. 
<laughs> that'd have been funny. Probably got Roger Lloyd's pack unless he was too busy with the Vicar Dibley. Very true. Yeah, that, that is true. It was it was a nice little opening and then a good little. So the family and Rona sat around the dining room table, another one of the family meetings. Christine is sat on the sofa behind them. Bill, as ever, being the leader of the pack, is explaining what's going on. She says, now I know it's a long time to go before Christmas Day. And Christine says, I thought this was coming. Bill then explains, although Rona and I are doing five Christmas parties, most of the money won't be coming through until after Christmas. Rona says, you know, especially the Inland Revenue Party, which Ben replies saying, well, what what are they serving that small businessman on sticks? Which I think is quite a funny, funny line. So Bill sort of explains, in short, it's going to be a very tight Christmas in this house. And Christine, again, has another response saying, looks around, says, well, we can see that. (laughs) The point is, we've got to make some very difficult decisions, unpleasant decisions. Ben. So Bill straight away turns to Ben, expecting him to give them the bad news. But even though she said that she was going to start, Ben says he doesn't want to be the one to tell them. And then Rona, to be fair, does kind of try and sort of soften the blow a little bit, try and ease the uh, the bad news. She says, well, what your dad means is you're both getting quite adult now. You're not little children anymore because it isn't as special as it used to be. And now it's time to participate in the mature discussion about the economics of the situation this year, Ben. So even though she's kind of hinting at what's to be said, she, yeah, she still turns to Ben to do it. But of course, Christine, being Christine, no nonsense, just says, do you want she to say it? Ever the dick from that. She goes, oh, for Pete's sake, obviously it's no presents this year by agreement. And Ben says, I'll tell them if you don't mind. I'm quite capable of telling them what she said. <laughs> so Jenny and David sort of say, you know, no presents at all. But Bill says, you know, they've still got enough money to make it a nice Christmas, plenty of food and all the usual things. David repeats it again, no presents at all. But the children are actually relieved. You know, Bill kind of tries to make it all a bit airy and nice. He goes, well, we might have some tiny ones just for fun. And Jenny says, no, I don't think we need to do that. Let's have nothing. That's what you wanted to tell us. Bill says, yes, but you weren't supposed to like it. So then David says, what, you wanted us to be miserable? And Bill says, of course I wanted you to be miserable. It's Christmas, which is such an adult expression. And I like I like the fact that the whole... It's one of my favourite lines in the whole the whole thing, probably. Well, the thing is, it's what's so nice is it's a real adult perspective on on the whole thing, and it's like nice that twenty five years later, it's still something that a lot everyone can relate to, especially now. Well, exactly, exactly. Not, not, not at the moment. I think a normal Christmas, a normal stressful Christmas, sounds more appealing than a lockdown Christmas. But that's not that's another rant for another day. Again, two point four children's on BritBox. Have that's that's our therapy, everyone. Jenny thinks it's the best thing, but what's so funny is the children at this moment seem the most happy with the decision and yet the adults seem to be the most disappointed so bill wanted to do it well exactly and they're they're being mature enough to say you know we can't actually afford presents this year we're just gonna not have any and i love it when bill sort of turns quite childlike says oh don't i get a present from someone and then harry appears with honey hands or a toy which he's had in his mouth and she's like oh thank you very much david says he just wants feeding and jenny confirms absolutely no presence then and Ben's like doesn't bother me and then Bill and Rona sat around the table both looking very sad and there's some music playing which sounds a bit like the Hovis advert music really sad kind of music could did you get that vibe yeah sort of like sad Charles Dickens we're all having a miserable Christmas type of vibe yeah Christmas carol that everyone's not going to have 
anything at Christmas this year. So Bill's kind of go to it, you know, let's go and ha- eat hobnobs until our stomachs explode, <laughs> which is, yeah, I do quite like hobnobs, though, to be fair. Chocolate ones are better. Oh, yeah, definitely. Hobnobs. I'm not supposed to eat hobnobs anymore. I can't talk about biscuits. Sorry, I will go on to the next bit. Well, actually, no, I say that. The next bit's even worse because it involves a Snickers bar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very sorry. So Ben quietly gives Christine a present. Bear in mind, four years earlier, he said mates don't do that sort of thing. So he's grown. He's definitely become a little bit less, um, what's the word? Manly. Manly. Manly masculine so he gives a a wrap up snickers bar which she's really unimpressed by but his excuse is king sized and then he just goes oh i can tell this is going to be the most miserable christmas ever jenny runs downstairs saying there's someone in the garden so then the sliding doors open it's auntie tina who says surprise and then christine bear in mind christine's not seen tina i don't think they've been in the same room together for about three years since women on the verge of a nervous breakdown Nice little throwback. Christine goes, oh, blimey, Miss Prissy Knickers. Merry Christmas. And she just legs it out there. <laughs> it's just, I love that, Miss Prissy Knickers. It's a fantastic nickname for her. It suits her very well. Actually, yeah. no, it probably suits, hmm. you know, no, yeah, it suits Tina. Maybe it suits Rowan a little bit, but she's not Prissy. I think Tina's posh with it, though. Yeah. Yeah, quite like, I mean, she's very, like, upper class sort of puts it on as well. Very high in bouquet in that respect. So Ben asks Tina why she came round the back and Tina says, well, the last five times I came round, I rang and rang and rang and no one came to the door, no matter how loud I shouted. And I love how they all just look guilty around each other. <laughs> this is, um, that, that's uh, one of my, again, it's one of my favourite bits out of the whole series. Is you have like a visual of her doing that and they're, they're all hiding. I mean, they've, was it them not... Have they hid from Tina before? Have they hid from someone else? Maybe it's the vampire, actually. Yes, but the vampire. imagine doing the same thing to Tina every time. Well, bear in mind the last time, which was in the episode The Deep, when she appears, and then Bill shouts up says, Jenny, David, it's Auntie Tina. And you hear these two successive <laughs> door slams. <laughs> so um, Tina says, so I thought I'd try coming around the back this time. Bill's like, how clever of you. Then... <laughs> Jenny and David try to sneak upstairs. Are my impressions just so good that you're being transported back to watching this episode, David? No, well, I've only just watched the episode about an hour ago, and it's probably the 357th time this year. Um, So, yeah, just a bit. But, yeah, I just find it hilarious every time I watch it. And it is my favourite. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it, it is wonderfully observed before it gets even crazy. So Jenny and David try to sneak upstairs. Tina tells them not to go as she has some wonderful news. She explains that she signed up for some insurance thing a bit away a month. She's completely forgotten about it. And now it's finally paid out. So then she says, then last week they wrote to me and asked where to send a check for £3,000. I was going to say now, that seems like quite a low amount of money, really. I mean, I suppose back then it was still lowest, but still quite a substantial amount. I mean, it's not a little amount of money, but I don't think I'd get that excited about it now if someone... My relative came over and said they've won three grand. I'd be more excited if they've won 100. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I'm intrigued on what insurance that she, what insurance scheme she's signed up to and why it's, I've just started a job in an insurance broker. So I'm kind of thinking, well, what's it? Why she got it? Why is it paid out now? But 
details I don't give a damn about. She's got £3,000. She explains that Tina's, uh, I'm sorry, Shane's away with his dad and she was going to spend Christmas alone. Then she realised she could make this at Christmas to remember. They're all huddled around and they're so excited. What, what, what's she going to do for them? Because obviously she's there for a reason. Tina's going to save Christmas. Exactly. So then she just says, I booked myself a Mediterranean cruise on the Oriana. And they all just sort of, sort of stand there and... Blank looks are like, what? Yeah. And she repeats herself again. I booked myself a Mediterranean cruise on the Oriana. And Bill says, yes, we heard you. Bill just sort of sigh. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's a real <sighs> letdown. Rona's like, where are the hobnobs? <laughs> <laughs> So Tina has come over because she sails on Christmas Eve, so she needs someone to take her down to Southampton. And then she just makes it very clear, of course, anyone who did come would have to promise to be very discreet about it. I don't want any undue attention to fall upon me. And it's a really great visual of the camera close up on, up on Bill. And she just goes, oh... And then we cut to this jolly Christmas music going do, 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 with the family driving the blue Chevrolet, decorated with balloons, sort of flying and hanging from the ceiling of the, from the top of the car. A sign that reads Bon Voyage and tinsel around the front. I mean, you couldn't get any more <laughs> extravagant and not non-discreet about it. It's really They're funny. Little revenge, isn't it? It, it, well, it is. It is revenge for the amount of time she's been so <laughs> difficult with them. Tina is sat at the back between David and Rona. And I love how above the front two seats you have mistletoe. Um, Tina's like, it really wasn't necessary for you all to come. And Bill's like, oh, but we wanted to. And I love the glare that Bill gives Ben. And she's just, and Ben just love gives her that evil glare. And Bill just has a sneaky look on her. She's just enjoying it all. David says he's never seen a ship's cabin before. Tina says, well, she's not sure if they allow visitors on board. Rona says, well, they always do in the films. David then asks if they still have press gangs as well. You know, they've got this idealistic view of what the cruise ship will be like. Titanic. Well, this was this just this before Titanic, wasn't it? Well, before the actual film, yeah. Well, well, yeah, the film. Obviously, the event happened like 80 years earlier. Thank you, David, for for, for reminding me of that. Just to make sure you knew. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm relieved. Oh, oh, were Jack and Rose not real as well then? I just want to check about that. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, no, no, they were, they were definitely real. And right, there was okay. definitely enough room in the door, that bloody door. Yeah, bloody exactly. One. So Tina says, oh, it's a little different these days. Bill points out the entrance. And I love how Tina gets really anxious when Ben says, you know, will he ask for the way, or, you know, ask for where, where he's going. Bill, she's like, oh, don't say anything that makes me look like an inexperienced traveller. She's just so <laughs> scared. of. It's like how it is high since bouquet. She's so scared of looking like she's not on the level of everyone else who's there. Yeah, she has to be. She has to fit in, basically, yeah. Bearing in mind, it's basically based on insurance scheme that's made her get the money to actually go on a, a Mediterranean cruise. Mm-hmm. So she's not as, you know, she, I mean, obviously, bless her, she's getting through and through and through a divorce and everything. So she's obviously struggling. But still, you know, she, she's she's going to just make her life miserable trying to fit in. Um, so they stop as a man appears to check her ticket and they ask if they need any directions. And Bill says, no, she's no stranger to the docks. You know, and <laughs> Tina just looks really disturbed because, like, <laughs> what that implies is so much worse than... <laughs> Tina knowing what she's knowing how cruises work. I mean, Bill could have gone further and said, "Oh, she's used to cruising" or something like that. Maybe. <laughs> I just it's really funny though. They they struggle to find Pier One Hundred Six. Eventually, they pass through an open gate, which Bill's unsure is 
the actual area to go to. A white van is driving behind them. And then we see the Oriana, beautiful, massive ship. You know, think of like Titanic, or even bigger, probably. Tina suggests, yeah. yeah, I mean, Tina suggests they drop her off there. And I love how Bill says, well, surely you're not ashamed of us, are you, Tina? She probably doesn't care. She probably just knows that she's going to get Tina wound up with everything she says. <laughs> Tina says, no, I just don't want to make a bad first impression. Remember, I'll be stuck on board with the same people for company for two weeks. Ben says, you know, Bill's just teasing. I promise we'll do everything we can to make sure you don't lose. Crash! The car slams right into the vehicle um, in front of them. Ben tries to reverse, but then he ends up crashing into the white van that's behind them. So the car is now sandwiched between the two other vehicles. Ben storms out, trying to be all butch and masculine, saying, haven't you credence ever opened a copy of the Hierarchy and examined the safe stopping distance? I mean, what the hell do you think you're... The white van door opens to reveal six Commodores. So obviously he's he's made a scene in front of people who work on the cruise ship, not just anyone, but the Commodores. So then the Ben saw, yeah, the one, well, the one Commodore. But the one Commodore. The rest are just like crew. But they all dress in Commodore costume, u- uniform. But it's like um, like they're all in the, I think, is it the Navy? Or in like the Navy. Know. I don't know. I don't know if it's meant to be Navy. No, it's probably not Navy or anything like that, but it's more like, they're meant to be like the ship's crew and the Commodore's like the captain. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's They're it. In white. They're all dressed in white. Um, ben Sauce says, yes, well, we wouldn't be in this situation if it wasn't for the brainless idiot. Oi, oi, out! Then, come on, Coco the Clown, I want your name and insurance company. So the man gets out of the car that's in front of the blue chevrolet. He's also dressed in a Commodore uniform. Ben explains it was all his fault and he'll have him in court. He asks for his name. The man says his name's Henderson. Ben asks if he's some steward or something, and Henderson explains, no, I am a Commodore. To which Ben replies, <laughs> a Commodore? Do me a favour, you're not even black. I didn't know what that meant for a very long time until I realised the Commodore's the actual band. Yeah, American Soul Band, which Lionel Richie used to perform in. That's where he made his name. So Henderson says, you have smashed my rear light. So obviously getting more annoyed. Ben says, come on, take a swing at me. Let's see how brave you are without your crew behind you. Ben's trying to be very macho here. But as always, when he's very macho, he's not able to, to succeed. The crew of six appear behind him. And this is one word that, uh, that wouldn't be allowed. Now, I'll take the whole ponty lot of you. <laughs> Bill drags Ben away while he's holding a suitcase. Oh, so while she's holding a suitcase, she's just gets him out of the situation. She just shouts over, my friend will give you our insurance details. So Rona appears with the notepad and pen. She goes, yes, well, this is my address if anyone's interested. <laughs> she's got a boyfriend now. She's got Tony. But she still likes the well, attention. She, I think she just likes the flirting and the attention, even if she doesn't see it all through. A bit like Dorian Green. Yeah. Not as wild. Though. That's true. I think she's, she's a Not lot more. vivacious. Very true. I like that word, vivacious. Yeah, I like that word. Henderson checks the back of his car. David moves it, um, but nearly squashes the captain. So, And I love how David just gives him a thumbs up. Like, he, he's just... They've all just annoyed him so much. Henderson points to his crew and says, if any of these people are ever foolish enough to fall under my jurisdiction, remind me to cast them adrift on an open boat. Nice little foreshadowing for later. Bill shouts, don't worry. We're not actually passengers. Bear in mind, he's, she's the last person he sees. And with what she says, that's very important for later on. <laughs> so in the cruise hallways, Tina and the others are carrying her luggage. You know, she says, I'm not sure we should have gone through that way. 
And Bill just turns to Ben saying, what choice did we have? You know, she's really annoyed with what Ben's done. <laughs> ben says, I still think I could have smashed him one. So they all go to her cabin. When they go in, it, you know, it's, it seems quite small, but it's probably spacious for just one person. But when there's like five or six of them, it, it does feel a lot smaller, doesn't it? Yeah, a little bit claustrophobic. I also noticed Bill's jump, Christmas jumper. I love it. It's like a, a dark orange with like little patterns, like of um, trees and Christmas trees and stuff. It's really sweet. Just wanted to point that out. Ben looks at the bathroom. There's a free bottle of something that he smashes. Rona goes to the window and says, this must be open. And then she looks into it, but then she looks like she's about to fall out. Um, and in the trailer for the episode, there is one bit where they show that clip as if she's fallen out of the window. Just quite a funny misdirection. Bill says they should go before something else breaks. Dave is looking through the channels on the television. Ben stands up on the bed and then he grabs onto this kind of box that's attached to the wall, but it falls off and he has to put it inside the bedside table. We're going to be revealed what that is in a couple of minutes. They all say goodbye to Tina. Rona then points out that things are moving. Bill's like, oh, what? And suddenly she just realises that they've moved. She goes, oh my God, we're leaving port. Tina says, you know, that's impossible. Before they anchor up an anchor, they put out a special message on all the boat's loudspeakers. Ben suddenly realises that what he's pulled from the wall and put into the bedside table was the loudspeaker, so they missed it. They run down the corridor, and um, the music that's playing in the background is called Making the Plane. It's by John Williams, and for anyone who's ever seen Home Alone or Home Alone 2, the family in that are late or running late to get their plane, and so they're running crazy through the house then running through the airport trying to get to the terminal and they are running to this music similarly here they run down the corridor um, looking for the bridge it's it's very kind of music that carry everyone what you say sorry very kind of carry on film yeah it is and and it's, it's music you've probably heard in adverts christmas adverts ever since it's kind of become quite an iconic piece of music so they go to the top of the ship um, which is on the outside and they say the you know the port really has gone uh, they, they at one point say that we're going to look for a wheel like it's a pirate ship I don't think they quite realise how how cruise ships run they run back down the stairs while Tina runs up them she says she's got a stitch it's kind of she's trying to keep in, on, in um, up to with the others but she's just not as quick they run they return to another hallway and then stop Tina says you know she's not running any further Bill finds a door to the purser's office so she says, we'll just ask him to call up the captain's office to explain. He'll understand. They're all reasonable people. David then shouts over and on the wall is a picture of Henderson, who is the man that Ben antagonised earlier, who is revealed to be the captain of the ship. And they all glare at, at Ben and he just kind of goes, whoops. So they realise <laughs> now he can't. They are stuck on there because of what he said. They if yeah, they are because he said if they ever go on his jurisdiction, he'll, he'll cast them adrift. In an open boat. Yeah, yes, exactly. And I love the announcer says, you may like to know we're all leaving Southampton Parlour. You know, you just realise they are stuck on there. So back at the Porter's house, Jenny is looking for Bess and Pearl. They are both in the kitchen preparing the Christmas dinner, saying they didn't want to leave everything until the next day. They've got a mixing bowl, which takes me back. Uh, it's like a mixing bowl that my parents had. It's very 90s. Bet's boiling veg and Pearl's stuffing the turkey. And Bet pours a load of salt into the hot pan. Now, what is it with that generation and mushy vegetables? Because I swear every time we have a Christmas dinner at my grandparents, the vegetable has to be like mash. The broccoli is like mashed potato. It's just so it soggy and soft. I mean, for me, when I was a kid, 
it wasn't so much that the vegetables would be mashed. Um, potatoes and carrots and turnip would be mashed. The carrots and turnip would be mashed together, which I, I can't stand it, not to be sick. Love carrots, love turnips, not, not together. Not together. No, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. The salt thing was more, I don't know if it was just to season it. I can't remember. There's some sort of reason behind it. Yeah. But it's not, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. And Jenny says, you know, we don't do that anymore. Um, you don't use salt anymore. It's almost like a clash of the generations who, you know, health, the more health aware generation that Jenny's a part of. Ben said, Bet says, bring out the lard. Bring out the lard. Yes. How would you describe lard? It's like really, it's like butter, Fat. isn't it? Fat. Yeah. Fatty, buttery kind of stuff that you can put in pretty much anything. I always thought lard was just pure fat. I Might think that's be. what it is. Oh, I thought it was like oh, butter. Well, it's, it's horrible. Bit... Oh, it's disgusting. It's it is like a, you know a heart attack in a cube. It's it's horrible. Um, but Bet Pearl, sorry, is using it all over the turkey to make it nice and crispy, and it isn't using any dripping to be found anywhere. That's what she says. No dripping will be found anywhere. They're then looking for gravy with giblets and I, I noticed at that point claire buckfield try not to laugh because they're, they're probably just in their own little world and then bet tells jenny not to worry about the others being a bit late give them time to have a nice long chat and then <laughs> jenny kind of sort of backs up against the fridge and says oh please don't be much longer little does she know little does she know indeed so back on the cruise ship the others are sat in tina's cabin they're all sat sort of on the bed or on the side and they're all just looking kind of glum and and down to, to the ground and announces then says if you look to the port side of the ship you can see you can just see where we're passing the coast of france and you see all the characters just look up and then look back in like in like six succession like all of them just looking up at the same time and looking down they're all just really miserable because they've really got themselves into a pickle here bill says she thinks that they should have told him i think she's right ben asks would you do you want to bill says no and tina to be fair is i mean i feel sorry for tina to be honest i mean she can be a pain but (laughs) this is her holiday you know she's had a horrible couple of years and they have ruined it really and so she just says, it's no good. You've got to tell someone we're getting further from the port all the time. Rona suggests they just offer to pay for themselves. Um, Bill asks if anyone had any ideas. David asks if the captain is still allowed to whip people because everyone on board <laughs> is under his legal jurisdiction, which, you know, he's kind of thinking of pirates there, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. So well, Dave, with the whip yeah. part anyway. Yeah, very true. Uh, David says they're now stowaways. And Tina, Tina, again, is thinking more along the lines of her status at this point. She's like, stowaways? And you're in my cabin? Like that, that, I mean, she's probably worried as well that she's probably going to get cast adrift as well, even though it's in her name. I mean, do you know what I would have done at this point? I would have stayed in one of the lifeboats. Yeah, that would have made sense. You've seen a little bit, obviously. I would have stayed in one of them with a few blankets. Well, Sneak into the uh, restaurant for some food every now and again. Well, the thing is, you're not going to... The the likelihood of it being another Titanic is slim. You know, rarely do these cruise ships actually use these lifeboats. They're there in case of an emergency. You're absolutely right. They probably would never have known, maybe. Yeah. Even if even if the ship did sink and the light, lifeboats were needed, they're already in there, so they're happy, happy days then. Oh, exactly. That's exactly it. They could blend in anyway with everybody. So Bill says, you know, we are not stowaways and there's absolutely nothing to be frightened of. There's a knock on the door and they all jump. It turns out it's a concierge with towels. Tina says that you can come in in a minute and they all start to panic. They need to hide. And so then all the others except Bill hide under the bed quilt like it's going <laughs> to, like that's going to work. 
They need an invisibility cloak to actually make this work. So the man enters and puts a pile of towels on the bed and leaves. Tina then opens the wardrobe and all the others are literally piled in this wardrobe, all kind of stuck between the, the gaps. It's, it's really funny visual. So Ben says no one will know if they stay in the room. Two weeks that she's going to be there. Tina asks where they're going to sleep. Ben says there's plenty of space. And again, again, I do feel sorry for Tina. She just reminds them that she has spent her savings on this. And then Ben's trying to kind of lighten the mood, saying, you know, well, they'll give her company, even though she doesn't want company. And and even Ben, in his childish ways, just goes, it'll be fun, with this kind of <laughs> grin. Tina leaves the room, and ben, Bill, to be fair, being the grown-up, says, you know, she's absolutely right. They'll have to go for the first stop. Rona reminds them that they don't have their passports with them. Do you know what? This is where Bet was right to bring their passport and relax over in case international jewel thieves uh, break into her <laughs> house when she's out. This is the moment they yeah. should have brought their passports with them. Can you imagine this episode, though, if they had mobile phones, it would have been so much different. Do you know, it, it's interesting you say that, because if you think about the mobile phone boom, that was what? 2000 early 2000s even within a few years of this being shown the, the whole kind of national use and, and more people getting a mobile phone would have changed things definitely yeah it would have you're absolutely right imagine home alone with a phone that would not have worked no jenny is technically home alone so it fits the fits the theme bet and pearl are like marvin and harry only they're not breaking in they're just making a life misery <laughs> it's true though well, they, are sort of, they are sort of like burglars in a way they're in the sort of torturing a yeah. They do get on eventually. Well, we think. Well, they do. Yeah. I think there'll be a lot to talk about that later on. So Tina says she's going to get food and everyone's hungry. Ben looks at Tina and puts his arm around her with his cheek and going, Tina. And then at the canteen, Tina grabs a tray and puts some coleslaw on her plate and then in her handbag, which I, considering she's so proud of her belongings, she's just put the most disgusting food ever into. Oh, great. Take something more practical than grated cheese. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, she adds her ham onto adds ham onto her arm, covering like a, a bit of like a scarf. She then grabs some rolls and puts them in her top, so it kind of breast enhancers. Breast enhancers. Yeah, that's right. An old man is kind of watching her from a seat, and he finally approaches her, and and it gives you know startles her. He's very very forward throughout the whole bit thing, and and straight away you know he's watching her across the room. And 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 what's so funny when he's talking to her, she notices that she's got two rolls sticking above her top. So she kind of sort of puts them down very discreetly. He asks if she is traveling alone. She says she's traveling completely alone. There's no one with me at all. You know, she's doing that thing where she's trying to not she's hint. Yeah, exactly. Overcompensating, trying to hint that she's not got anyone. He doesn't either. He takes her tray so they can eat together and he introduces himself as Fletcher Carrington. And as she walks off with him, two bananas fall out of her clothes, which is just a great <laughs> visual. So Andrew Marshall has already mentioned this in the memories. But David, do you know who the actor playing Fletcher is? I can't remember his name, but it is Belinda Lang's father. It is indeed. It's Jeremy Hawke, who's Belinda Lang's father. So that's a nice bit of family relations in 2.4 Children. Just it's just it's, it's, it is very interesting because I, I wouldn't have thought it was, if you know what I mean. Um, I didn't know. It wasn't even that long ago when I actually looked at the cast properly and looked up what he, well, his sort of life. Yeah. And then I realised who he was and I was like, oh. I know. It's, 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 it's,
<laughs> yes again we'll get to that bit later on yep. so at the uh, room the others are waiting and working out where to sleep he's working out the potential logistics that three people on the floor is one option david says you know you can't have three people in one bed and then rona's i'd say oh yes you could <laughs> we all know what she's on about there ben's yep. peeking through the door bill tries to keep him in he asks if she's hungry they're all hungry and he says he's going to get some food for them bill tells him he needs to be careful he says he will, and that the chances of him bumping into the captain are a million to one. So outside the cabin, who does Ben see um, in the corridor talking to another passenger? Captain Henderson. Who else? Bill locks the door, and Ben walks down the corridor, and the captain follows him. And it is really a kind of hearts in your mouth this moment, because obviously Ben's the one that he will have remembered the, the most because of his argument with him. What I found a bit weird was the way Ben was walking. He sort of tilts his head sideways. But like, it's not going to stop him recognising him. I think that's panic mode. I think when, when you know, if you see someone in town or something that you don't like, your, your whole body just changes um, manner that you, you don't always do things correctly or log- log- logically. I, I mean, I don't know. Have you ever come across someone in town you don't like? Plenty of time. I don't like the public in general, so. Well, fair enough. So you, you probably recognise that as well. You're probably doing it without knowing it, David. That's probably it. I my thing is I don't make eye contact with people. I look downwards the whole time. Fair enough. So that I, makes sense. I've walked past people so many times and they've, they've pulled me up on it a little while later and said, you ignored me the other day. I'm like, I ignore everybody. Don't take it personally. Fair enough. That that makes sense. So Ben then sees a door with a sign that reads no admittance to passengers. He then goes into a room um, where another door is locked and the captain walks past. There's no handle on this door. So... You just think what's going to happen to them. Tina and Fletcher go to the dinner room. And it, this is quite funny because Tina's quite, I think she's quite in a vulnerable state here. You know, she's up, firstly, obviously, she's still probably reading from the loss of, well, the separation from uh, Brian. And then she's got this kind of dirty old man who's, I think, taking advantage a little bit or doing it in a subtle way. The way she sort of asks, you know, what is this place? And he goes, you he's know, not, I, letting her not letting her escape, no. But he's also kind of cunning. Because this, the way he behaves in this scene suggests that he's plans to find someone, yeah. you know, to find a lady while he's on board. Because when Tina asks, what is this place? Flesh says, you know, I have never been here before. He then points to the piano player, gives like a gesture to the piano player, starts to play a song. So it's kind of like a, a sort of romantic melody. They then walk to a table um, and Tina says she needs to get back to her cabin. He then flirts asking if he's been deceived. And if there is someone, she says, well, no, there isn't. So he says, well, why don't we stay here for a while? Again, Fletcher is clearly planned and spoken to the staff in case he has a woman with him. Um, he gestures two fingers, not, not you know, two V fingers, <laughs> but two, you know, but just sort of, yeah, he makes a gesture to the waiter who nods. Tina says it's a nice atmosphere. You know, again, Fletcher's playing the kind of charming man when he's actually a bit of a sleazeball saying, you know, I hadn't noticed. And then he puts his hand up to the piano player, plays a different tune. And then Fletcher continues saying, it's what some people might call romantic. And then poor Tina, she just sort of smiles a bit and then she just starts to well up and and she just goes, yes. The poor <laughs> Tina, she just is he's still very vulnerable. She then says it's exactly two years since Brian left her. She you know, makes me think he told her much later than we did in, in Women on the Verge of Nervous Breakdown. Because you think about Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, that's way before Christmas, I think. And obviously she heard the mistress on the phone. So I'm wondering if maybe it's much later she told him just before Christmas and then he left. Maybe I'm just thinking too much into this. It might, it might be. It... <sighs> It was someone from that kitchen place, wasn't it? 
and it, but it wasn't immediately after that episode. Yeah, I reckon it was probably a bit of time later for building up the courage to, to confront him. And then Fletcher's being very charming, saying, what sort of man would leave a gorgeous creature like you? And Tina says, a DIY expert. <laughs> Left me for the blonde at the fork mic accountant at home base. Just Not just any blonde, but someone who's a fork mic accountant at home base. Just the, the amazing little yeah. detail there. Uh, home base still going strong today. She needs to blow her nose and he's about to give her a tissue. And she says, no, it's okay. I'll use this bath. And so she <laughs> blows her nose into one of the roles that she's taken with her. And I love the way she says bap. It's just, I've never heard someone say bap in, in a more posh voice. Bap. It's, it's brilliant. I, I, it's, it's such a northern expression as well. So it's really weird to hear a southerner say it. Am I right in that thinking it's a northern expression? I don't know. I think... I think up here, we would call a bath mm. uh, more like a balm cake. True, very true. He uses there as like a bread roll that he'd use for soup. True, that is very true, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So Fletcher says he wouldn't have brought her there if he'd known it would distress her. And again, it's another funny visual when she's just dabbing her eyes with a bath. And she says, <laughs> it's all right, you weren't to know. She's just being, she's genuinely upset and not quite realising what she's um, <laughs> she's using to, to um, dry her eyes and then being kind of charming and, and, try, and, and giving a false sense of security saying I would never take advantage of a lady's weakness and then the waiter gives Tina a large <laughs> bottles of bells so you just know where it's leading so it's going to be a very um, long night for Tina he wants to get a very very drunk exactly laundry room and there's a pile of towels and dressing gowns in the corner and then Ben's head just pops out from the pile. And then he kind of appears like a monster. Um, he hears it. I hope they were clean. Clean I, towels. I'd like to think so. At least in real life, I hope they were clean. Oh, I, I'm sure they were. I'm sure they were. I'm sure health and safety and hygiene regulations were properly. In 1996, health and safety is a 2000s thing. True. That is very true. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Things have changed massively now. So he hears a hissing sound, and that's where the ironing is. And then Ben finds a waiter uniform and takes it. Bill and Rona are organising the bed. Rona questions whether they can get away with it. Bill says they can if they're careful. They're just on tenterhooks now. So Rona hopes someone will bring food soon. Bill reminds her that she's hungry as well. Bill shouts for David in the bathroom saying they need to make up the bed. She goes in and he's left a note. He's gone. And so she reads it saying, getting very hungry, gone to find dad won't be long. So neither know when he left. Rona says he can't have got very far. But Bill says, well, he better come straight back. So naturally, David, being lacking any self-control, gets out of a lift and walks through a corridor to find the gaming room, including slot machines, uh, you know, ar- not slot machines, arcade you know games, pinball machines. Yep. Do you know what would have been a really good little touch in that, in that arcade? If he was playing Ninja Badger. Oh, the, the arcade version of Ninja Badger. Yeah. yeah. I like that. That'd be really cool. And then see if Ben, then Ben sees it and then realises, no, I can't, can't go there again. Not the <laughs> oh, Badgers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice little retro joke there. So in the kitchen, they're cooking some delicious meat, chicken in the, in the, on the ship. Uh, Yorkshire puddings, uh, you know, really nicely put together food for the ship and, and dinner time. And Ben appears and grabs a tray of food, which has like, um, it's, it's not, it's, co- it's covers, isn't it, over the plates, but like uh, metal covers, which you kind of pull up and it keeps the heat in. And it, get, until yeah, it gets, I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, it's, it's quite posh. 
um, cutlery, um, I think. But I, I just, it looks like something you'd see in Downton Abbey. And <laughs> there's a fantastic revolving door that kind of keeps going round, but it's not a lot of space to kind of, that's the word. It is quite tight, that door. It is, isn't it? But it, it just makes me laugh because they are really expected to hold these pile of plates in both hands and then go through the revolving door. You probably have to practice it to go out into the dining room area. So he goes into the meal area and there's, you know, the passengers all staring at him as if he's just kind of not meant to be there. He's just feeling more guilty. Ben is then sort of gestured by Captain Henderson to go to his dinner table. So Ben realises he's not get, trying to keep away from the captain. He's actually serving the captain's table, which is just the worst nightmare come true. Back at the porterhouse, the turkey has been eaten and crackers have been pulled. Bet and Pearl sat on the sofa with a gap in the middle. So Pearl says she doesn't know where they've got to. Bet says, probably enjoying themselves somewhere without a thought for us left behind. We both go on to say they've had a really nice day with Jenny. Bet says that she's begun to think of her as a young woman. And Pearl then says that after they their very long chat, she realised that they don't have there's not too much difference between them. And then they wonder where she is. Jenny then appears from the kitchen with a tray of whiskey and she's wearing a headscarf, a bit like ones that you can see you, mentioned, you see the Queen wearing. And her outfit is like, very much like an old lady, very much dressed like Bet and Pearl. They're very, um, yeah. how, how do you describe old ladies dressing? I don't know. Um, just very sort of flowery material and flowy dresses. Yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> You know, the, the headscarf is what really does it for me. And but she even just she even her whole manners changed. She's gone from being very kind of chirpy, no, but very nervous, and then to a bit chirpy like them. Uh, she says that she found the coat in the loft. Pearl says it's much more suited to you. And then Jenny removes a headscarf and says, "Well, you did such a good job with my hair," and reveals that they've given her a perm very similar to Pearl's, and and it's a it's um the color purple. It's what, sorry? It's almost, like a, it's almost like a blue rinse in a way, but purple. Yeah, it's, it, 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 it just, it's just, so now she just looks like the three of them, the other two. And then she, Pearls just says, home permsly are so much better and they last for two months. Jenny sits between them and they're each holding a small glass of whiskey. And she's even like, her jet, her whole body language is a lot like them. She's kind of got, she's kind of sat up with holding the whiskey, like, like a sort of older lady. And they all discuss what they're going to do next. Jenny Plus, says... She's spent so long with that. She's, it's a bit like when you go somewhere for a couple of months, you might pick their accent up. Yeah. She's picked up her being... I think it's Stockholm syndrome is what she's got. She's um, experiencing at the moment. She, you're absolutely right. She's just gone a bit mad, really. It's a bit like um, when Bill, you know, in trouble hat with Harry. When, the, when I know it is an actual dog that appears, but she does think she's gone mad because she's believed in it so much that it's appeared. So I think that's the same with with this. Then, so Jenny suggests the games they could play could be knockout whist, a beetle drive, happy families, and then she goes, or we could play all three, and they get all hysterical and excited playing these games. It's just quite a funny moment. But as you say, it's the la- it just shows that actually Jenny didn't have too bad a time with them anyway, in the end. She seems to be having fun. Yeah. So back in the cabin, it's night time and Bill and Rona are sat on the bed looking really miserable. They hear a couple laughing next door. Rona then wonders where they're going. Bill says it doesn't matter. We're staying here. You know, she says, well, at least some of us have gets, got some self-control. So Bill then just sort of, sort of gets reflective and says... I never thought I'd spend Christmas like this. She's saying, we'd be sitting down to the afternoon dinner nuts now. Chocolates, cheese and biscuits. 
my mother's terrible orange and lemon slices. And at that moment, Rona's tummy begins to rumble. And then poor Rona, though, Bill sort of tells her to take have some control. But Bill's the one talking about food. And Bill's tummy rumbles. Bill wishes her a Merry Christmas and said it could be worse. And then the announcement on the tannoy mentions that dinner is ready to be served. This is one. When did they fix the tannoy? Oh, very good point. They've not had time to do that, surely. You can sort of see it's had a bit of a, a botched job repair on it, but when? Yeah, true. I know that is very true. Or maybe they got someone in and they hid. I don't know. But yeah, I know it has a good point. David's playing on a pinball machine and then Bill and Rona appear outside the window and knock on, but he can't hear them. Bill and Rona are walking away and they hear footsteps. So they take refuge in one of the lifeboats. As you say, they could have mm-hmm. been there the whole time. It's Fletcher and a very tipsy Auntie Tina are walking. You, know, you can see in Tina, she's just a little bit wavy. And Fletcher's being all poetic and romantic, saying, there's nothing like the ocean at night, the sea, the stars. And Tina's just like, I suppose so. And then Fletcher, the mysterious beauty while the tides come up, the celestial lodgings, the flowing seas. And Tina just goes, don't know, really. Going over her head completely. Oh, it is. I think I think she's not used to being with someone that romantic. Because Brian's, I can imagine, a very boring man. I know she says in the past when he's feeling romantic, he just says Ovaltine tonight. But that's probably the closest it gets. He's probably not used to saying really nice, poetic things. So Fletcher says, come. Not like sleazeball kind. No, exactly. Then you have have Fletcher continuing saying um, I suppose they're destined to compliment each other as they do two lonely people drawn together. He's just really trying to make it seem like them their meeting is, is destiny. A bit like Rose and Jack in Titanic obviously. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, wasn't the tagline for the Titanic um, something like um, de- it's something that something couldn't destiny couldn't tear them apart or something like that. I have absolutely no idea. No I can't remember now it's a long time. So many, many- yeah so (laughs) bill's head is in the window of the um, lifeboat sort of like watching them in shock and tina says i suppose you could put it like that as the camera moves bill and rona are moving through um the the boat looking through the window and fletcher says for tonight we are together tina asks where they're going he's directing her Bill and Rona get off the boat and Bill says, you know, what is she doing? And Rona says, I think that's pretty obvious. (laughs) Bill says they need to get everyone back in the cabin. They go back into the ship and Rona says they need to disguise themselves. And Bill says, what did you say? They turn around and there's a sign, Theatre Royal. The dining area, Ben puts out the plates and the captain still hasn't noticed him. And (laughs) Ben does it very awkwardly to avoid being seen. So having his back to the table and giving the meals out from behind, which just looks so uncomfortable, but it's quite a funny visual, bit of um, good, um, bit of uh, physical comedy there. Ben's about to give the captain his plate from the right and then to the left. Uh, you know, just, just, you know, it's really well choreographed. And then the cast, do you notice or hear captain saying to someone, cast adrift on a boat? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's an, you know, it's, yeah. You sort of hear snippets of him telling the story of what happened before. Yes. To show that, it's to show everybody that's like watching, I think, that he hasn't forgotten. Yeah, and he's probably really still very annoyed about it and he's not going to uh, let it go. Ben is about to leave and the captain asks for vegetables. Ben's handed a plate of potatoes with like, well, it's kind of two forks to grab the potatoes and hand them. It's well, it's like they've got, it's almost like you've got to use uh, matchsticks with forks and away from the table ben tries to master oh no it's a oh, is it a fork and a spoon isn't it yeah i think it's a, a, a let's call it a spork a spork i like that 
and <laughs> and then Ben tries to master grabbing the potatoes with a spork, uh, but then one of them falls, uh, you know, sort of slides out from the spork and onto the ground, which is another funny visual. Ben asks the female pastor at the table, sure you wouldn't prefer chips? He's just not, and what's the word? He's not sophisticated or posh enough for it, because I'd like chips on a cruise ship, but I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't. I'm sure they do do chips on the cruise ship, but not at a formal dinner like that. Yeah, yeah, probably not. Probably like at the buffet or something. So behind the theatre stage, Bill and Rona are sneaking around and then find the dressing up room, wigs galore, and they're crouching down, waiting for the dancers to leave the dressing room. Bill says to Rona, under no circumstances must we get separated. She, you know, it's like, right. And it's a really funny visual when Rona says, right, and she stood behind Bill and she sort of stands up sort of straight. And suddenly she's just sort of just going, just moving to the left, almost like she's floating. It's just hilarious. And then you realise from when the, the camera pans out that she's on a like a revolving floor that moves in a circle and she's just heading towards the stage. And it's just so funny because she has no idea where she's going. And then Bill turns around and she's gone. So then the red curtains open and there are four dancers already on stage. And then Rona just appears on this revolving floor and going around the stage, just looking out in fear at a bunch of, let's be honest, old ladies in the audience clapping. And then the music starts to play and the old ladies are laughing because they, they probably are in on it. They know it's for 2.4 children, but it's just a very funny visual because there's these kind of dancers who are dressed in like Egyptian costumes. And then Rona in her normal clothes, she just looks completely, <laughs> just doesn't fit in. She's not wearing the same clothes. But then the dancers begin their number and Rona just stands there awkwardly for a few seconds. And then just suddenly, as the music sort of kicks in and goes, Rona joins in. And she doesn't always, but for a lot of the time, she actually moves in time with them and does very similar gestures to their dance routine. So she's in the middle of these dances now, and there's like um, two dancers either side who are in tune with each other. But it's like she's the, in the middle, like the leader. So she's really centre stage at this point. And it's just a very funny visual. So down another corridor, we see a lady wearing a long purple dress. She has like a huge orange feather fan. Is it a feather fan, those those um, things that she's holding? I don't know. What is it? Uh, feather boa? Is it a feather boa? Feather boa. Yeah, yeah. The, boa, um, feather boa, as in B-O-A, boa. Yeah, I'm going to say that. Yeah, if you, if you know that, I'm impressed. I had no idea. But as a lady wearing this long purple dress so uh, long orange gloves and she has long blonde hair face covered by this feather boa puts it down and it's bill bill's wearing this purple dress with a blonde wig and then she just says oh why is it always me who has to sort everyone out <laughs> and and she does look really good with a blonde wig on and um and the dress you know she does really suit it very well at the dancing room there are couples who are dancing Tina and Fletcher sat at a table and Tina's still very drunk, but I think she's kind of cat catching on to what that he's doing. She goes, if I didn't know you any better, I think you were trying to get me drunk. And Fletcher asks if she wants another pina colada. And and, and then Fletcher's quite forward at this point. He, he says she'll go and suggest going back to her cabin. And But Tina's kind of aware of, of her state of mind. She goes, I don't think that's a good idea in my present state of mind. That could lead anywhere. But Bill's walking through the couples dancing. Fletcher admits to Tina that he's always had a weakness for a stunning blonde. And Tina's sort of, she's going back with the flirting this time. She goes, oh, Fletcher, you say the most terrible things. Shall we dance? It reminds me a little bit in this of um, Leslie Phillips. 
Yes, he does. I agree, actually. That's, I think maybe, unless that's the sort of thing that they were going for, I don't know, but he does remind me of, reminds me of him quite a bit. Yeah, I agree on that. Um, have you ever seen Casanova 73? No, I've not seen that. I don't think I have anyway. I've seen clips of it and it was it was a band because it was Leslie Phillips playing a kind of middle-aged um, playboy. Um, but yeah, I can kind of th- I know he's in this carry-on films and others, but I, I can see what you mean about the Leslie Phillips. I'm a, I'm a sorting hat. Harry Potter sorting hat. Leslie Phillips is a sorting hat? Yeah, you didn't know this. I did not know that at all. Yeah, if you listen to the sorting hat, you can really tell it's him. Think of the sorting hat in your head now and you'll know. No, I can't see. I'll have to watch them later. I can hear it, but I'll need to, to watch that later. Interesting fact. It is. So Bill appears in the blonde wig. And do you notice when Fletcher calls Tina Christina, like he's just not taking any notice of her, you know, asks if he's going to, she's going to introduce him to his, to a charming friend. I've not, I don't, I don't remember him saying Christine. I'm sure. I, I'm sure. I mean, I had to whiz it back a couple of times. And he goes, Christina, are you going to introduce me to your charming friend? I'm 100% sorry, says T- Christina, or maybe I misheard, but it would make sense in two ways. Firstly, Christina, Christina is a name. I'm going to have to listen to it again. But the other thing is, though, he's not taking any notice of her because he's got a wandering eye all the time. So yeah. he's sort of gone off her now and, and sort of remembers her name, but not fully, even though Christina's a more bigger name to remember. So um, Bill says, you know, that won't be necessary. How do you lot manage to get yourselves into these situations? You know, it's it's and that's some of the audience thinking there for the porters. How do they all get themselves in these situations? Tina says that she and Fletcher were going to have a dance, and Bill just goes dance, and not realizing what how she said it and what she's referring to dance meaning what you can have a dance. Fletcher then grabs Bill and pulls her away and says, "Thanks, I'd love to." And then I love how Bill just makes these weird noises. She goes. Ah! <laughs> And then as he's kind of dancing, she goes, Arr! and then at one point um, he leans her down. I don't know what the terminology is, but she's kind of kind of leaning back. What's the, the t- I don't watch Strictly, so I don't quite know the, the terminology, but then her wig's about to fall off and then she just grabs her going, Arr! she tries to run away and he grabs her and then the only one's dancing on, on the dance floor now. And then I do feel for this, for Tina again at this moment, she's, she's actually bawling in tears going, it's happened again. <laughs> and you do feel for it. I mean, the audience laugh, and I'm not sure if that was alcohol, a bit of... Though. I think it's more the alcohol that's causing her to cry. Oh, okay. It should be that emotional if there wasn't booze involved. True, it is Bill. She does know it's Bill. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. It's the, it's the drink that's maybe doing it. Um, David and Ben and Rona appear. Rona asks if she thinks Ben should go and rescue her. <laughs> Ben's a total be in this moment isn't he <laughs> he's just smirking and she goes oh leave her she looks like she's having a good time for once and then even though every time you know she's trying to get away he grabs Fletcher grabs her back now you mentioned something a bit earlier when bear in mind we know this is Belinda's real life dad there is sl- a slight awkwardness yeah. with the um the dance because you know that Fletch is attracted to Bill but you know, in real life, they're much farther doors. I kind of get it, but you just, you kind of have to suspend your belief in that moment for the purpose of the scene. One part of it where he sort of strokes up her arm, which I just find it a bit, now knowing that it's a dad, it's a bit cringy, but at the same time, I suppose it's not as weird because they were only dancing and it is father and daughter. They dance at weddings, I suppose. 
Yeah, and to be fair, it's it's it, it it all it is is like a little stroke. I think it's just by the elbow, and it's kind of it could just be seen as a movement in dancing. You could just interpret it that way, but obviously, in the context of the episode, it is obviously more that he Fletcher fancies Bill, and she just goes, "Oh my god!" Yeah. You know, it's just very funny. Ben says, "Let's go and find some food." You know, the captain must have gone to bed by now. Then Fletcher pushes Bill near the floor, and then her wig falls off knocks a glass off a table and her full face is revealed to Captain Henderson. He just sees her and it is a really funny visual of Bill leaning back with her head back, hair down. He's just glaring at her and she just says while her her head's back, I'm sure we can work this out amicably. (laughs) And then, yeah, he does, doesn't he? Just like, "Mm." looks like he's about to kind of explode. And then in the wide ocean, lovely blue sky and and ocean, there's a boat cast adrift with balloons on the top, like the ones in the car. And they have indeed been cast adrift. And Bill starts to sing, Ah, the herald angels sing, and they all go, shut up. Now, do you think Tina will have been cast adrift or will it be the others? I think it'll just be the others. I, I like to think Tina had a really nice time on that on that cruise and and Fletcher found someone else to annoy and she would have gone for them overexcited and had a heart attack probably yeah (laughs) that's a cup potential it's 2.4 children it can get dark sometimes and then despite having been told that there's no song at the end this year there actually is so (laughs) and so um the song is be kind to your parents it's similar to the opening number of the white sort of background, white box. Claire and John appear, um, all dressed up. Claire in a long black dress. John in a tuxedo, both look very, very smart. And they're singing to the camera, here's a piece of good advice. And the music just goes, do, 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 do. And in the time of the music, they give each other glances. And then the lyrics are, think it over once or twice. And the music again goes, do, do. Do, do, do. And in the first, do, 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 Claire adjusts John's bow tie. And in the second one, I think John sort of flicks her hair or something. So they're like, you know, sort of, what's the word, um, smartening each other up a little bit. Yeah. They then turn to the camera and they sing the rest of the song. The lyrics are, be kind to your parents, though they don't deserve it. Remember they're grown-ups, a difficult stage of life. At this moment, Belinda appears in the far distance in a very kind of glamorous fur coat, not like the mink coat in, in uh, Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, but quite a, almost looks a bit like, like Cruella de Vil kind of coat. Um, she's yeah. got a headscarf and sunglasses. She looks like a real old-style Hollywood star. Do you agree? Yeah, very sort of like actory. Yeah, very much so. So she's holding a suitcase and a curly-whirly. They're apt to be nervous and overexcited, confused by their daily storm and strife. That's the lyrics to the second part. Belinda then returns with Julia, who's wearing very similar clothes, and she's holding a can of what I think is Vimto, but backwards. I think it's a Vimto can. I'm not sure, I'm not. Um, So, but, but once again, this kind of theme of they're all, the adults are dressed up in these kind of big coats with glasses and headscarves, all holding a suitcase and some form of food. So the lyrics continue. Just keep in mind, though it sounds odd, I know most parents once were children long ago. 
incredible. Then Gary appears with Julie and Belinda wearing similar clothes. So he's wearing like a big kind of fur coat, glasses and a headscarf. And this time he's holding a slice of pizza. It's brilliant. And then then they all run off. So the lyrics are finished with. So treat them with patience and sweet understanding in spite of the foolish things they do. One day you may wake up and find you're a parent too. Claire and John part. And then just as the credits are finishing, Belinda, Gary and Julia all run back on stage, on centre stage, all dressed up. You know, Belinda's wearing a kind of long black dress. Julia's wearing similar black dress, but it's more like um, a sort of secret, like a suit, isn't it? Is that right? And then Gary is wearing a tuxedo and the you know the piano's playing the music out do 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 and they all are about to pose but they all the it freeze frames on some quite awkward not particularly glamorous shots so belinda's the most glamorous looking she sort of does a very actory sort of gesture with her arms to the camera but then julia's sort of she does look very surprised and gary looks shocked it just it's like it's it's frozen too soon had they been had it frozen a couple of seconds later they'd look really cool and glamorous but the whole point is they don't look glamorous at all but i like the song it kind of sums up the children are actually more mature than the parents which are kind of is something that i think the series is exploring a lot more especially in series six and I think as well with this episode, I think it really sums up the dynamics of the characters that Bill's the one who's always trying to keep everyone in check, but she ends up getting in trouble because she's trying to get everyone together, but she's the one who actually um, reveals them. She always, that, um, she always finds herself getting into trouble no matter what anyway, and sometimes it is instigated by herself. Oh yeah, definitely. But she's trying to do the right thing and then just fate has other plans in store. I wouldn't have it any other way. Absolutely not. And so, David, your final thoughts on Two Years Before the Mast? I think it's probably, well, this is my favourite episode. I think it is the best episode, personally. It's got all the elements that have always made the show so great. Yeah. It's got everything in there. All the characters make an appearance. Maybe Christine doesn't come into it as much as I would have liked her to have been. She would have been quite good on the boat. Obviously, space reasons, you couldn't do it. I'd probably have left, hmm, I'd maybe have left one of them out and I had Christine instead. Fair enough. I'd have left Rona behind. I didn't say that. No, no. Shocking, controversial, but is your opinion, then you are entitled to that. Now, this was broadcast in 1996, as I say, and 1996 Christmas on BBC One, the comedy, is the best years, I think, ever of Christmas comedy. So pre-Christmas Eve, you had Christmas specials of the Thin Blue Line and British Empire. Only Fools and Horses was on Christmas Day, and it was the episode where they dressed as Batman and Robin, uh, which is a, a classic. Yeah. And then following that is the Vicar of Dibley Christmas lunch incident, which is probably one of my favourite Christmas specials of anything ever. Um, so great it's thing. It's to... getting very, very depressing now, because I've just realised that it's 25 years ago this year. I know. It's, it's frightening. Oh. It's scary, isn't it? And then on Boxing Day, at eight, 20 past eight, you had the 2.4 Christmas two years before the mast. Nine o'clock, you had um, One Foot in the Grave, Starbound, which is actually my favourite One Foot in the Grave Christmas special, one of my favourite episodes. And you just think, what an amazing lineup of comedy on the BBC at Christmas. What are we getting this year? Exactly. Mrs Brown's voice. Again, again. 
Although Mandy and Two Years Doors Down was on yesterday, which is very good. But I think what this sums up is just how comedy was still at the top of its game, probably its last year in comedy, uh, Christmas comedy in 96. And you say 25 years later, we've just not really... Things came back yeah. a little bit in the 2000s that was up like the end with Miranda yeah. and Mrs. Brown's Boys at that point. But yeah, there's just no... Or very few studio sitcoms anymore. No, um, no. But what's interesting is you look at that that lineup. It's all classic episodes of those series of all those individual series. Those episodes, some of the fan favourites. So what an amazing opportunity to watch those Christmas specials in that year. It's just like normal TV. Oh, I know. It you, is, it's yeah. What it was. It's only in hindsight you realise how um, lucky we are to to have had that time and how. You think the good times are going to last, and they just don't, do they? <laughs> well, I've still got some good TV, sort of. Yeah, okay. And there's this wonderful show that's just been put on BritBox. Uh, you might have heard of it, uh, 2.4 Children. Oh, really? No, I haven't heard about that. Um, but probably someone should do a, a podcast about it, because that's the thing these days as well. Yeah, um, I'd be I'd be on board to become an episode of 2.4. Part. You guys should, you should give it a watch. It's great. I, 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 I'm always open to new to new shows and classic TV. So David, what do you rate two years before the mast out of five stars? Do I need to ask? I will award it five drop jock straps with extra buns. Sounds delightful. I think I'll give it five stars as well. <laughs> well, no, thank you very much, David. And we, you are due on again in series seven for Malcolm X. Yes, indeed. So thank you very much for everything, David. As I say, you know, you, you should deserve all celebration and praise for keeping this fandom going and for the campaign, which is obviously proven successful with the streaming. And let's see what the future holds. So with thousands of people involved. Indeed. Thank you very much for coming on again, David. It's, you know, it's been a, a one that thank you're looking you. forward to. You're welcome. And I'm glad we've we've finally done it. So Thank you to everyone who has listened today. I say it is Boxing Day, so Merry Christmas. And hope we've done two years before the mass justice. It is, I say, a fan favourite. And that concludes Series 6. We are now three quarters of the way through the podcast, which is frightening. It's gone very quick. So there's two more series left indeed. It's the last episode of 2021. We will be back with Series 7 in around February time. But there will be another episode of Don't Slam Your Podcast in January. We're going to do an episode summarising the whole of health and efficiency. So please keep an eye out for that one. Thank you, everyone who's been listening to the podcast. It's an audience that keeps growing and hopefully maybe more will listen to it now that the show's more readily available. Thank you to Andrew Marshall for the amazing memories. It really has provided us fans with some knowledge about the behind the scenes of 2.4 children thank you to everyone and the cast and crew who've supported us especially julia hills for liking us retweeting us on twitter and instagram and for being a fantastic interview thank you to kim benson for an amazing interview back in the summer and thank you to all my guests i'm talking like this is the end of course it's not i've got two more series left but no i i'm really really chuffed with how this podcast is going i i was i'm grateful that to everyone listening and stay safe keep watching 2.4 children and we'll see you in the new year thank you very much everyone <laughs>